Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Henrik Hagemann. Henrik is the CEO and co-founder of Pure Affinity, a green startup tech company that has engineered a bio-based absorbent material that can selectively capture micropollutants from wastewater. He is, to date, the youngest responsible leader I've spoken with, having turned 30 about five minutes ago. I met him when we both spoke on a panel about the future of work, and I was deeply impressed by his insightful intuitions about how to lead the next generation. I am so glad to have this conversation with you today, Henrik. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. So I'd like you to start by telling me a little bit about your business and how you founded it, because you are... I think by at least a decade, the youngest guest I've had on the podcast before. And as I was doing some research in your company, I have to say that I understood fewer of the words about what your company does and how it does it than most websites I might visit. So let's start there. It kind of came out of this science project that we were doing where really we were a team of undergrads at Imperial trying to represent Imperial for this world's biggest synthetic biology competition. And so the the thesis back then was to try and make these targeted materials that can capture some of the things that cause the most water contamination. And once you just go under underneath that layer a little bit, it starts to get very technical. But without going into that, it's... It's basically this realization that some of the chemicals we're exposed to are much more toxic than other ones. So whereas historical water treatment might have focused on removing everything to a pretty good degree, we saw this new paradigm of saying, just remove the most high impact chemicals to a high degree. And then this long tail of non-hazardous substances, just focus less on those. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really what we saw as a macro trend in medicine at the time. So this was 2015. You were just seeing CRISPR come out. You were just seeing like these new technologies that we got really excited about. And so we decided to put that to play in the environmental space. You can kind of see the plants behind me, the, the tree on the, on the wall. Like these things were a big part of my origin story, like growing up in Denmark. And so it, it, it really fell uh, in my interest when the research project ended up focusing on that. And then, for better or worse, we came, we came back to London and there was this sort of investment body where one of their leaders said, listen, I think you've you've got something here for a commercial venture. And that then became a whole other snowball. But it really started with this early moment of saying, hey, Maybe this research is not just for the bench and for this high high impact publication that we were gearing up to put out and, and we did put out. Maybe you could take it out to sites and to, to people. And that really got my attention. So you've been doing this since undergrad? Yeah, so it was in between my undergrad and master's master's year. And so I, I was supposed to do my PhD after, the, after that project, uh, but my proposed PhD supervisor, kudos to him, I guess, is he, he came up with this one concept, kind of like seeded an idea. It was just he lost out on some money before uh, from a biotech company because he decided to go down the academic route. And he had some share options that ended up becoming worth a lot because, yeah, biotech can be quite 
venture backable and can have large returns. And so he said, why don't you just give it a year and see how this possible commercial venture would, would turn out, would pan out, and then come back and do the PhD with me uh, afterwards if it doesn't pan out that well. <laughs> and that was, that was 2015 when he said that. Did you always think that you would go into leading a business? No, no. I, I remember starting my, my biomedical engineering degree at Imperial thinking, oh, I'm going to go and do project-based medical device development and it's going to be the greatest thing. Maybe after doing one project where I'm participating in it, maybe I'll start to be the team leader or something. But at first I will make this sort of device that we can take to market. So tell me about the team that you, that you founded the company with. What's your leadership team like? Yeah, so we were quite an unusual team in the STEM sense. So first off, we were engineered from a pool of 130 candidates at Imperial, all vying to get one of these 10 spots for representing this science competition called IGEM, I-G-E-M. So at the time, nobody really knew what it meant. But now a lot of people hear about genetically engineered and the competition is really called International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. So now like, we're like, oh, okay, a bit like the vaccines. And we're going to be like, yeah, like the same technology as for the vaccines. So the people were engineered to be 50-50 male-female because they saw that those teams perform better. And then they were engineered to have different disciplines. So we were not just bioengineers. We were biologists, biochemists, uh, bioengineers. So we had in engineers and scientists working in that sort of friction at the interface, working together. And then, yeah, there were some of my really close uh, colleagues on the team uh, that ended up being picked. So I did my uh, research project on this in this field beforehand, met some of the other people that were interested in this, and then we ended up 10 people basically being supervised by one person who had done this before at Cambridge University. He was a PhD student, and the rest of us were undergrads. And so we... <laughs> We thought this was really cool to have different international backgrounds. And we wrote a report called The Eye in iGEM, The Internationalism in iGEM. And we published that in 2014. And basically, we argued that with more diverse uh, nationalities, you gain a wider pl plethora of perspectives. And if you manage that friction, which it causes, and most people <laughs> don't recognize that friction which it causes, if you manage it well, you can get really good outcomes. And we, we thought, hey, uh, maybe we should have more of the judges from international backgrounds, and maybe we should also have more of the teams encouraged to do this, which was why we published this report. So how do you find it possible to make use of the friction without that resulting in feeling threatened, you know, because the real challenge about managing diversity well is that people recoil a bit from friction because they take it personally. How do you lead a team that manages it better? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things that are very simple to say, but difficult to implement because you end up being pulled in all sorts of directions. But for me, it comes down to two things. One is you have to build this pool of trust where you have psychological safety. And among this collective group of people, you have a pool of trust that these people have your best interest at heart. They're not trying to screw you over. Then they don't have some sort of like negative intention behind what they say. 
They're trying to look out for the best interest of, of this group. And then the other aspect of it is, is having this sort of framework for expressing wants and needs. It's very difficult to actually sit in these heated situations and say, oh, I'm putting across this concern because I want us to be safe, for the product to be safe when it's operated, let's say. It will end up being about a bolt that they want to change. It must be this bolt. And the other person will like drill with their hammer to say, no, it must be this nail. And taking, going out of those details and having a framework for expressing these wants and needs instead of just focusing on the issue, it's that very often the issue is not the issue. It's that communication piece of how we can put across wants and needs, which really like helps you overcome that friction. So what's the framework? How does that actually get enacted in practice? Tell me, if someone's fighting over a, a screw or a nail, how do you get to that upper level? Yeah, so it's it's catching yourself and catching others out. So we we put a lot of effort on trying to establish, okay, this is kind of the collective values we have. So we we talk in wants and needs, even when it comes to a client or even when it comes to something technical. And so it'll be calling one another out on it without without feeling threatened. So it's like, oh, I hear that you're concerned about this bolt for our rig. I think really you are focused on the safety aspect of this. Maybe we can talk about how we can get to a suitable safety component for this rig rather than just the specific of this uh, bolt. You use that wants and those wants and needs to find common ground. Very often everybody is like, oh, ultimately they have the best interest of the company at heart. It's just the expression that's how they express it, which is very different and sometimes can feel completely opposing. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting when I was looking at your company is when, when I teach people about how to build trust, right, because you've mentioned trust, one of the things that I talk about is the need to ensure that you know everybody that you work with in the most three-dimensional way possible. And I thought it was really interesting that in the bios of your team, right, I feel like I already get to, I've already gotten to know a lot of them just by reading their very short bios. These aren't even long bios. And yet I know that you work with someone who's a DJ who DJs in post-punk. I know that one of your teammates has a collection of tarantulas. I know that you've got an ice skater. You know, these are very um, interesting and specific ways of getting to know people. So it's it's very clear from from the ground up that you encourage people's three-dimensional selves to be represented. Yeah, I think it's it's really that point of just distill down like what your weaknesses are. For me, one of my weaknesses is that I am an extroverted introvert. So if, if I have to talk sh shallow talk with everyone, I get really exhausted. I get so tired, so drained. But if I can talk about this sort of deeper stuff with people, then I really like get a lot of energy from it. So we, we try and, uh, for me, I just try and use that <laughs> to the best of, of my, my capability. So it, it means if I talk to the team, I'd much rather hear about what really like you care about than how you viewed the weather yesterday. I don't care. I, I don't need to know that. But I want to know about your tarantulas, how you have 18 tarantulas in a flat and like how you look. Oh my gosh, them. that's a lot of tarantulas. <laughs> 
that's what I care about. And like, what do you do with it? How do you feed them? What's the engineering of the setup? Like, yeah, all of that. And then I learn as well. Uh, I learn about a random like post-punk uh, DJ. I know nothing about that scene. So I need to, I want to, yeah, that's an itch to kind of get to know more. So, so how did you, how do you do your recruiting? Mm. Yeah, so recruiting in the current day and age is, you can either say that it's awful, or you can try and say like, okay, these are the conditions we're served. In the UK, at least we don't have to like have as much labor law as in France. And at least it's not as crazy in terms of salaries and competition for talent as the US. So, okay, you'll take that in. With that in mind, we try and do this evidence-based hiring. So we, we track non-value-based metrics for our candidates across the funnel. So at, at the incoming funnel, like, do we have a balanced funnel of like different non-value-based traits? So is that age, is that gender, ethnicity, sort of nationality, what sort of background, what sort of LGBTQ status might people, applicants have? And then are there particular biases that can kick in in between different stages of recruitment? So from stage two to stage three, does everyone with a certain trait just get filtered out? And then it's like, what the hell is happening here? Like, what just happened to our funnel? Are we losing out on talent because of somebody's bias? Or is there something we're not doing right? So that that's one component to it. It's difficult to implement. And most people will, won't bother to go through all that effort. And they find it like really uncomfortable to ask about some of those traits because they think like, oh, can I even ask about that? It's not even allowed. I think that's part of like trying to overcome this thing with white people not wanting to talk about race or like with old people not wanting to talk about age and all those things you need to unpick. So that's one component to it. Then the other component is we, we try and show what, what's happening instead of like just keeping this very one one way like question, question, question from our side. We try and spend a significant proportion, like at least one quarter of the interviews for them interviewing us. And if there really isn't anything, it's, 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 an, it's again, it's all these small signals that we look out for, as well as like, even during COVID, we try and have some element of lab tours, because as I said, we have like atoms, which is cool. We do a lot of analytics and analysis, but also a lot of like water treatment, which is really the atoms, like the water treatment, the products, this sort of uh, physical goods. So we, we try and combine that element and have them come in and visit the space. And a lot of that is is obviously like taking place in the hallway. It's like, what do they pick up on when they go around in the hallway? What kind of comments do they make about the other people? What kind of comments or thoughts do they make? Just trying to get as much data on what they're like instead of hearing people describe what they're like. Everybody will say, oh, I'm a reasonable person. I'm like... A good I, team I like... player. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in the hallway, you'll hear them say like, oh, my gosh, this looks awful. What the hell is this person doing? And you're like, wow, uh, what just happened? I once had someone in a job interview say in London, this would be so great if it weren't in London. And I just remember thinking, did you just say that out loud to me in it? <laughs> In an interview in London, yeah, it's it's funny that we um, our preferences can sometimes leak out unaware. That's, that's like that's a strong sign that you have created an environment in the interview process where they can express their true self. 
you want that to be the case. You want these quirks about whatever DJing you do or like ice skating, you want that to come out because if you find it out later, it can be a real snowball effect in terms of affecting everyone else in the team or this person is actually not that non-value-based diversity (laughs) embracing and then you end up with a real problem. Well, I, I wrote a paper a while ago on on authenticity in the job search process, and one of the ways that we talk about it is that the the job search process is sort of a prisoner's dilemma on both sides, right? So, ideally, you want to be able if if your if your goal is to just get the job, it can sometimes benefit you to hide the parts of you that wouldn't fit the organization or the role so that you get the job, but that just does you a disservice in the long run. So actually it does both the organization and the individual who's looking for a job, the best service, if they're both honest about what the job is and who they are, because that's how you end up with good fit. And yet that's not what we're inspired. That's not what we're sort of encouraged to do because we all want to get all the jobs we apply for. Yeah, I think this is this is where it gets interesting. Like again, it's simple to say, oh, you should be authentic, but for us, it it just it puts out a lot of candidates when we say some of the things, and we want to find tease out what these common like disagreements that we have as a team that we can use to like filter out a lot of people. So the like one example is when we talk about reality facing. Everybody these days wants to be data driven, but when we talk about reality facing, we talk about when something is un- uncomfortable, like we, we steer towards that un- discomfort. We steer towards what is going on here in this conversation in the management team, which is not conducive enough for the team, whether it's from a team survey that we've collected or whether it's from scientific data we just received or from a customer engagement. And that reality facing is like we look away. We don't do the reality avoiding, which is like we go and watch Netflix and, and relax and look at something else. We, we go and seek out that discomfort and we try and think of how can we engineer some of the job interviews to to force people to either give an example or express or have to comment on data where we give them data where it's like this data shows something uncomfortable. <laughs> how do they handle that? Do they hate that? Do they just look away from it and talk about the good stuff to like make us feel good? Or do they say, hey, this is wrong and you need to do something? And typically we give them something from like a little while ago and maybe six months ago and we've had that realization where it's like something is wrong here and we want to sort of filter for those candidates that have the guts, the authenticity to say, oh, something is wrong here. (laughs) What the hell are you guys doing? I thought you were doing good science. Because that's the sort of reality facing constituent that just that example can kind of bring out it's it's amazing the extent to which people really strive to feel comfortable and so encouraging people to lean into discomfort is a, is a, is a really it's it's a really hard thing that you're trying to do let me ask a few questions about about sort of your your origin story as you say so you're from denmark what do you feel like are the important lessons you learned growing up or from your parents? Yeah, so I think I think we all have this sort of like uh, legacy from, from our parents where some of it is helpful, some of it is not so helpful. So some of the helpful stuff might be like, I remember as a kid living at the countryside in Denmark with like fields all around our house and I had to cycle five kilometers to the nearest school just to get to 
to class and my mom would like come home uh, i have like had like a typical taika mom high expectations take care of your stuff and like help your sister my sister was like always looking after me but basically I remember this one incident really well where she came home i hadn't cooked dinner yet and i was i'd just been in my room like reading or doing something i hadn't done my chores like in terms of vacuuming or something and she came up to me and like uh, on the staircase she was like uh, she wouldn't even have to swear my mom has like a, a very large personality you're within her realm you're like yes okay she's like one one 1.8 meters tall and like she really has a personality and so she would say take responsibility for your life what are you doing why didn't you cook, you cook the gravy what are you doing with your life and i just <laughs> like it it sounds so simple but that sort of concept of taking responsibility it really like later on kicked in i think and uh, <laughs> it's that sense of I, i never thought of there being like a fallback option from my parents or something like it's just i have to take responsibility and she she would teach me well on my dad also they would teach me that with uh, with actions so like i came home maybe kindergarten grade so like five, seven seven year olds I told my mom I didn't like my lunchbox and so sort of my mom, my sister say and then she was like okay you make it yourself and so so from like from that age onwards I packed my own sandwiches so that I could like I could like my uh, my lunchbox so I I think I think that's another lesson it's it's that sort of yeah consequence you you have to take responsibility but there's and there's also consequence to your your what you say and your actions not to the extent of like everything is going to be bad and obviously things are very comfortable in Denmark but trying to force kids well in this this case me as a kid to take responsibility and and feel consequence for my actions i think that was a really helpful helpful piece so this is this is the podcast for the center for responsible leadership and you've just talked a lot about responsibility what does responsible leadership mean to you how do you define being a responsible leader i think for me it's about I say this to my my senior leadership when they join the team. I say, obviously, we have our values as a team, and for me, those values go go through like being emotionally intelligent, being reality facing, uh, and then also being hungry. And so those three values kind of come as a core tenant. But the responsible leadership to me is is finding your style of expressing these. So for for me my my style of expressing these is very different from one of my other senior leaders who's more of an, of an extrovert and uh, <laughs> likes to let let's say express their emotional intelligence differently like I I'm not very touchy feely for example like it's just it doesn't fall that naturally to me I guess it's also being a cold dane but basically like getting each person to to express for me these three tenets in their own style it is where i think you kind of converge into this field of responsible leadership the other element to it which often is like lost out is is recognizing hey we live in an information uh, in economy you're always vying for your team's attention you're always vying for people's attention right now it's not about how much knowledge you have it's not about how much experience you have it's how can you create an environment where people are turned on how they're paying attention to this thing that's going on right now and they're trying to lean into it to take responsibility for their contribution to the project uh, you can have these like fantastic players all a players put them in a pool 
they're not paying attention to this thing because they're not taking responsibility for the task, you get an awful result. You, you get B players and they're all paying attention because of the leader. They're all taking responsibility. You get an amazing outcome, much better than like these B players, which Google would never like accept if they were to try and acquire you. They'd be like, oh, your, your talent is too shit. Like, what are they doing? Why, why are you performing so well? And I think that's how you can drive these sort of like superior outcomes where on the paper, it doesn't make sense that this team is, is that good. You get that working as a responsible leader and then, yeah, everything starts to move really smoothly, really well. How do you f focus people's attention or not focus? How do you recruit people's attention given that that is such a scarce commodity right now? Yeah, I think first off is being very real with, with your team and yourself that most of the time people disconnect from when you're talking. Even if it's like a good meeting, even if it's a good thing you're trying to solve, they just, they will disconnect. Like the reality is people's attention span is decreasing and we're expecting more information in a shorter amount of time. <laughs> so it's, it's starting with that realization. It's again, that's a bit uncomfortable. Wow, I'm not that entertaining. Wow, I'm not that fun to like to work with. It's not that. It's just underlying macro trend towards shorter attention spans. We try and work with that. Uh, so it'll be about, okay, introducing three elements to, to the employee's experience. And that's where the employee experience like survey also originates. It's really, do they have purpose? Do they feel like, wow, we're building like something that really can move the needle here? Do they have mastery? Are they building a skill? Are they getting better at playing the piano? Are they getting better at building rigs? Are they getting better at doing the science? Mm -hmm. And then autonomy. Do they have enough autonomy to, to basically take ownership of this thing without feeling like, oh shit, I can't handle this. If you can combine those three pieces, then, yeah, I mean, this is the drive book from Dan Daniel Pink, but then, then we see a much higher engagement and much higher, well, longer attention spans. Not very long still, even for scientists, but longer. So as a young founder and head of a company that's doing new stuff, you must have received lots of both good and bad advice from all sorts of corners. What is your favorite piece of good and bad advice you've received? <laughs> yeah, I think my I'll start with the worst one, which is just you have these people that go around and suggest stuff based on anecdotal advice where they haven't actually lived it themselves. So they might say, oh, you should really find a way to, to sell this asset and to generate some sales from it. And then the next day they will say something else because they've listened to a different uh, podcast or they've read a different blog. And I think that is very challenging. So basically, I would say whenever someone offers you prescriptive advice, like you should do that, listen out for the word should. Uh, it, it tends to fall in this category of worse advice. It's like, oh, you should take this offer or you, you should do that thing. That's something I'm careful with. The best advice I, I have is this sort of applying a mental framework that they've done before. So the first mental framework that helped me go for the company instead of just a PhD, I spent three months thinking about this conundrum. Should I do the PhD? Should I do the company? Which one am I going to choose? 
and I was doing my masters at the same time. So there was lots of pressure of top down from my degree uh, forcing onto me. But really, there's one question that helps me answer it. It's this question of what would I regret less in five years' time? <laughs> so it's trying to just distill down what is that timing thing which is going on right now that really suits your life and what you want to do. And for me, like I could do the PhD five years later, I could still do it now. I could have a lot of fun doing it. But the startup that was just setting out with this sort of whole wave of biotechnology, making it into environmental space, analytical science getting better, data science getting better, all those enabling blocks were like forming this massive wave. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I think there is really a timing piece to, to starting the commercial venture now. We have this momentum from having come second at this competition. We have these people that are interested in backing it and investing in it. Even without us having gone and gone out to seek investment, they just went for one of the presentations we did. And so, yeah, my co-founder basically helped me. She helped ask me that question. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, the cards had just dealt at that point. And I was like, okay, I'm going to regret it a lot more if I don't do the startup now and I just do the PhD. To date, what is the accomplishment of which you feel most proud? <laughs> yeah, I think... For me, the, the New Year's resolution of like 2019, 2018, for me was learn how to become a good uncle. So I, I, my, I'm very close with my sister and uh, she got a kid uh, called A, Arthur, that uh, year. And basically I was thinking to myself, what kind of uncle would I like to learn from? Like what, what would I like that person to be? And I wrote a letter to myself and basically in this letter I wrote like, uh, I wrote it maybe for six months later, five months later to say, oh, I hope we've done some of these things and I will look after stuff uh, like the body and everything for you. So that hopefully when you open this letter, you'll be like, dang, like, thank you, past Henrik, you've done a great job. And and basically when I opened that letter, I wasn't, it wasn't like a massive accomplishment. Like, like you know, I've, I've done some things where it's like, wow, okay, you've done that thing, done that thing, that's good. I think really like just trying to be this sort of person that you want as a kid, you would be like, oh, yeah, I could look up to this person. Like they're not doing something fantastic right now, but they're looking after their like emotional, their spiritual, their mental, their physical health. And they're doing something which is like net positive, net contributing towards tackling some of our existential crises. crises. Uh, I think that that's my my probably biggest accomplishment because it's like <laughs> it's easy to accomplish something wow okay i rode across the atlantic i cycled the silk route it's like okay cool but trying to just wake up every day and look in the mirror and be like okay yeah I, i'm i'm okay with what i'm doing i don't feel like terrible <laughs> with whatever it is i don't feel the need to drink a lot of alcohol to forget about what i'm doing or like to to play video games or do something else to avoid reality it's like I'm actually, I'm happy, happy with it. It's not easy, but I find meaning in it. I think that's, that's the, one of the accomplishments I'm really pleased with. So this, this next section of the interview is in a way to allow people who listen to the podcast to get to know you in that three-dimensional way that we talked about at the beginning. Um, with a very quick set of questions that it's designed to uh, allow us to get to know you quickly. So what is your favorite work of fiction? I think it would be the Earthsea Wizard by Ursula Le Guin. And she's 
she's great at creating universes and she has like this amazing anthropology uh, understanding. So what, ma- what makes you like that book? What makes you choose it? Uh, I love the main character. Like he's not super likable through many sections of it. But one of the big, the big realizations is that instead of trying to run away from his monsters, he embraces them. And he's like, yeah, actually, they're a part of him. Well, that's it's it's really interesting that several times in this in this conversation, you've intimated that you come across in a way that I don't think you do. Right. You called yourself a cold Dane. And I don't see that at all. You know, since the first time, since meeting you, I thought of you as incredibly warm and humble and open, right? For me, coldness <laughs> is about being shut down rather than being sort of leaning into the discomfort. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, do you have a secret skill? I, I do deep tissue massage therapy. So it's, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a, an applied way of putting my biomedical engineering degree to use. In what way does it put an engineering degree to work? Yeah, so we learned all about the elasticity of the musculoskeletal system and how like frontier research is trying to see that if you put a cancer gene in a soft extracellular matrix, it starts behaving differently, it starts behaving like a normal cell. And that's taking place at UC Berkeley and it's really cool going into clinical trials. And so I thought, oh, okay, yeah, like I've been learning this massage therapy since I lived in China I want to continue working on this because I see a link. And I was like, isn't it an obvious obvious link? And and so I've been doing that for 10 years now. And I have like founder friends or like people that get injuries come on like the weekends with patients. And I, I just try and teach them in pairs. So the spouse or whoever learns the skill and then I get them to run off and basically look after one another. Oh my gosh, that is a secret skill. Um, <laughs> Do you have a personal motto? I can think, I can wait, and I can eat better. That's your personal motto? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it comes from Siddhartha from Hermann Hesse. Ah. Uh, It's a slight variation of it with me uh, preferring to eat better than whatever he does in in the book. But I think that's probably like the closest we can come. Do you have a favorite word? Mm, yeah, I think my wife introduced me to this one. Uh, she's she studied like eco criticism, so it's like science, uh, climate change, literature, and ephemeral. So it's yeah, you have things that that are always changing, and it's kind of what makes them beautiful. But it's also sad that they're changing, because you like sometimes what they're like in that moment. Coming to terms with the fact that life is about constant change is, is one of those hard life lessons that it takes decades to lean into. What's your favorite way to unwind? Ah, I think it's gotta be the the wushu, the Chinese martial art I was doing when I was living in uh, Henan province. So I still do it. I do it with the Imperial College team. And uh, when they're not locked down, so we go for competitions. Right now I have like one-on-one sessions with my coach on Zoom. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's such a nice way to do the sort of physical meditation. It's very sweat-inducing and hard, but <laughs> at the same time, it, you just have to be present. The, the secret to it is being there during the sessions. I had to look that up when I was doing research on you. I, I have never heard that particular form of martial art. Oh, no. And yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. I've got to That's learn something nice. new. <laughs> if you had to do something entirely differently with your life, what would it be? 
I think I would be either living on a rock with the Shaolin monks that I used to live with, uh, or would try to be uh, this sort of like a fantasy author. I always wanted to be a, a fiction author for high, uh, for fantasy when I was a kiddo. And I, I wrote a quarter of a book for like uh, one of the things during my high school uh, for a project. And I think I would be doing some, something nerdy like that, basically. You should finish that book. You seem to have a lot of ability to focus. So maybe in some <laughs> yeah. of your downtime, you can even finish the book that you started as a high schooler. That'd be great. So let me talk a little bit about where you're going next or looking to the future. Your company focuses on, now maybe you could just articulate in a couple of sentences what to, to lay people <laughs> who don't have chemical engineering degrees, what your company aims to do, provide to the market. Yeah, so Purefinity is developing materials that allow us to provide 1 billion people with Teflon chemical-free water by 2030. How we do that is by applying these advanced science and te technology tools to make these materials that we call precision materials. So it's much like we have precision medicine. We think there's a big benefit of having precision materials. It allows you to basically reuse chemicals because you're precisely grabbed onto a chemical that you can then program to release that chemical. Having that ability allows you to have a lower uh, greenhouse gas footprint so you don't use as much energy to remove these things. And you're not just throwing away the material once it's been used up. You allow it to be reused. And then there are these benefits to it of you can implement it in existing infrastructure. So in, in water treatment, in industrial water and residential solutions, people have been doing it for hundreds of years. And it's very difficult to introduce a new paradigm. So we make these small granules that look like pellets. And they basically, if you imagine yourself buying a new shirt and there's a pack, a small sachet in there and those small pellets, that's basically what our products look like in a smaller variant go into these large steel tanks and the steel tanks have the water flowing through them and when it comes out it comes out safe that material that active component is what we make so we want to be like an intel inside we make these active components for water treatment as setups be it at under sinks or at large industrial sites with three meter wide standard steel tanks that is that is very helpful thank you What do you see as being the biggest ethical challenges your business will face in the next decade? Yeah, yeah. I think one large ethical challenge for us in the beginning was, oh, we, we are engineering biology, so these cells to make functionalized materials. And that, that was gen genetic engineering, uh, synthetic biology. And we, we had a massive hurdle with how we're going to introduce this to the environment. Is it going to be safe? Are people going to be open to adopting this to tackle our crises? And so we had to look one step back and be like, okay, well, apparently not. The European Union didn't even want it for food products. And so we're basically letting the medicine frontier lead the field. So people now are okay with advanced gene therapy. They're okay with genetically engineered vaccines. And so that's pulling in this macro trend of being more okay with uh, biotech-derived products. And so to overcome that hurdle, we basically took a step back and we made these peptide mimics that looked like the molecular receptors, which we had developed with that first approach, but that weren't made using biology. 
So you still have similar function, but you overcome that hurdle. That that was already one hurdle, ethical challenge. Another one is this sort of inequality of technology. We we talk a lot about solving many of these problems. And in our case, uh, we can really try and solve the problem at the source or just at where the symptoms are felt. And you can make a lot of money selling solutions to where the symptoms are felt. So, so let's say the higher income countries where you can have residential solutions, people that can afford to pay get the solutions to avoid these Teflon chemicals called PFAS. But you're not solving the cause of the problem. You will be like Sisyphus continuing to roll the boulder up to the mountain and then gets to the top and falls down because the, the cause of these things uh, is industrial contamination. So for us, there's always been that pull between industrial solutions versus residential to monetize the assets. And I think one of our key ones will be to have installations at these manufacturers and sites for remediation that really use the Teflon chemicals for purposes that we still need. Like to make a vaccine, you need PTFE in your tubing, and that comes from PFAS. So it's difficult to vaccinate the world without using these things to manufacture the vaccines. It's very like not talk, talked about, but we want to have our solutions at those sources of contamination Because then people that live in lower income countries where you do manufacturing, they don't have to pay for individual solutions. They just benefit because we put a barrier at the very source of contamination so they don't get affected with all these regions around. We can have like disproportionate impact by doing that. So we've aligned our investors to impact investments. That sort of one billion people. We can reach a lot of people just by going to a few sites because they otherwise discharge to a lot of people. And so that that is one ethical consideration, and I hope we will get it right, because there's a lot of people's uh, lives that could be affected. But obviously, I think we will see in, in sort of our category businesses that just sell to the symptoms. So they just sell solutions to people who can afford it, and, and that's it. You, you can make a profitable business out of that, no, no doubt. But is there, there's nothing keeping you from doing both. That's your argument. Yeah, that's that's my argument. So my argument is, uh, I founded an NGO b before. It was like from Burmese refugees in Thailand, and we were building sanitation setups in the northern jungle of of beyond uh, Chiang Mai. It's really painful to fundraise for it, and so if you want to avoid having to go out with your hat and ask for money every six months, you have to find a way to make the business sustainable. So in our case, we can monetize from this sort of residential application to pay for those large installations to get through that hurdle. But it's making sure that investors and all the stakeholders align with not just focusing <laughs> on residential applications, because you could go down that rabbit hole. What gives you the most hope for the future? Oh, yeah, this is interesting. So I think, I mean, the pandemic, it, it rose a lot of friction, uh, which put, put that aside for a moment. One thing I really like about it is that, uh, and it's weird to say what you like about a pandemic, it is really people have become passionate about health. Some, obviously, they express this by being not so keen on receiving vaccines to look after their health. Others, they start cycling for the first time in five years, jogging for the first time in 10 years. And I think that macro trend is basically the right direction, e even if the expressions of it can feel like reversing progress in, in some cases, to be very frank. So, you know, I, as this interview comes to a close, I, I think about your mom 
chastising you about not having gravy ready for dinner and and I'm, I'm after I after we finish this interview, I have to go up and wake up my teenager who I know was up until four in the morning because that's when I got up this morning and has to look after his younger brothers today. And I'm going to think about whether or not I should require him to make gravy. So you've inspired <laughs> me to, to really make sure that I make my children responsible for their actions and have consequences for them. So thank you for being such an inspiration to me today, Henrik. Oh, it's a pleasure. Tell me how it goes with the, <laughs> with the kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will report back. Thanks so much. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.